This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. So I love all things politics. Yes, I'm one of those people. Um, I remember in 1988, it was my first exposure to uh, how we elect a president. And I remember learning about uh, President George H.W. Bush, at that time was Vice President George H.W. Bush, and learning about Governor Dukakis. And, and I was in my fifth grade classroom at the time, and my teacher had posters for both in the room um, and uh, taught us about the electoral process. I remember watching the inauguration of President Bush in January of 1989. Uh, and then four years later, I was a little bit older, so now I was 14. And I was really starting to understand this stuff a lot more. And this was uh, when President Bush was running for re-election and President Clinton challenged him and won the election. And I remember in my uh, bedroom, uh, I had gotten an electronic typewriter. Yes, students, those existed. And uh, what I did in my bedroom is I typed up all of these ballots. And so I typed up ballots for the Republican primary and ballots for the Democratic primary. And every single person who would come over to our house would always get a ballot. And I had a little shoebox and I cut out a little top. And I wanted everybody to vote in my presidential primary, right? And so I kept this running total. So that's where it started for me. And then as I got older, I became a little more sophisticated in my following of politics. And if you come to my, well, it's not there now because I haven't moved in yet, but once I move into my new house and my study gets all set up, I have an entire section of just uh, presidential history, U.S. history. One of my very key focuses and I'm just so enamored by is the modern presidency. If you go back to Franklin Roosevelt and around the Great Depression to today, I can tell you things about U.S. presidents that you don't even care to know. You know, I can tell you stats. One of my favorite books that I have read over the last few years was a 700-page definitive account by Craig Shirley of the 1980 presidential election. So go ahead, judge me. It's okay. I'm secure. I'm confident in what my hobbies are. So I want you to know that as we approach this topic today, that I'm not a casual observer. I'm not somebody who just uh, drinks the political Kool-Aid of the day. I am someone who takes this very seriously. Uh, I'm semi-knowledgeable. And this is like a sport for me. I mean, there's baseball, there's football, and there's politics. And depending on the season, depends on it will tell you which I like best at that moment. And then 2016 happened. And what 2016 has done has uh, it has uh, bewildered me, it has discouraged me, and, and I would even tell you from a personal standpoint from my heart deeply saddened me by what I've watched because I'm a Christian I'm a Christ follower but I'm also an American I'm so proud to be an American I love my country and I love the presidency I think it's such a prestigious office I think it's uh, the most important position in all the world and I've watched this year as it has just gone down this road of decadence that our founders never meant for it to go down And then I've watched as very well-meaning, traditionally-minded people feed that process. And it's left me just bewildered. And I bet you I'm not alone this morning. 
I mean, Facebook feeds are just lighting up, right? With just how disillusioned we are about our choices this year and about what's going on in our political process. And that leads us to our hard question today. What do we do? What do Christians do? Like, how do Christ followers approach this thing? Before I ever go in any of the teaching this morning, I want to lay down some disclaimers, okay? And, and some predicates for us before we dive into our study. One of the things that I think that Christians have to do is approach this election with grace. Because there are very few other people in society approaching it with grace. And so we have to recognize that in our churches, and especially in our congregation today, can I just illuminate a truth to you? Um, there are people in our church this morning who are registered Democrats and people who are registered Republicans. There are people in the Democratic primary this year in our church who were totally for her and voted for Hillary. They stood with her. And there were others who were feeling the burn. On the Republican side in the primary in our church, there were people who totally were buying into the Trump train and are still on that Trump train. And there are a lot of other people in our church who are hashtag never Trumpers. And so as a result of that, we as Christians have to approach this election with grace because we recognize that among our brethren and among our brothers and sisters in Christ, there are some very differing convictions of how things should play out here on earth. But here's the challenge and here's the disclaimer for us as we go into our study this morning. We as the body of Christ must not, cannot allow our differences of earthly matters to cause us to be disunified when it comes to eternal matters. And so this morning, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna bring us up. Everybody else is pulling us down in this election. We're going deeper into the mire, deeper into the mud, and deeper into the demagoguery. This morning, what I wanna do is pull us up. And I wanna pull us up as Christians to see the helicopter view and to see what's going on through spiritual lenses. Here's another disclaimer I'm gonna tell you today. Whoever your favorite candidate may be, I'm going to disappoint you today because I believe the Bible, as I, and I, I'm going to echo some of those truths today, has some strong words for almost every candidate running this year. And so if you're expecting Pastor Chris to just give you ammo for your side of thinking, probably every single one of us is going to be disappointed this morning because we need to look at this election through spiritual eyes. We need to see it through a spiritual lens, and that's what we're going to do. Last disclaimer before we dive in. We're the people of God. We're brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters in the faith. And so no matter how disappointed we might be in some of the things that are said or taught this morning, we need to walk out this morning in lockstep unity and love because the body of Christ trumps, no pun intended, what's going on politically in this world. And so can we do today as the body of Christ what it seems like our country is not allowed to do or able to do is to have a sophisticated intellectual and spiritual conversation from the scriptures about what's going on around us and leave knowing that Jesus is our ultimate king. Are we on the same page this morning? All right, those are our disclaimers. Let's dive in. First Peter chapter two. So here's what's going on in Rome. The people of God are under persecution. They're on the run. They are, being, uh, they are living in an empire being led by Roman Emperor Nero. Now, if you know anything from history, Nero was not exactly a banner and a poster child for the religious right. 
Uh, Nero was one of the world's most ruthless dictators and rulers. And we're going to see some of that play out as we go through our message today. The entire book of 1 Peter is Peter, the apostle who walked with Jesus, is writing to the church at Rome to encourage these downtrodden, discouraged followers of Jesus in remembering their earthly home instead of remembering their eternal home instead of putting all of their hopes in their earthly home. And he is reminding them that they are really just sojourners and exiles passing through this place and to live all of life in light of that truth. And when we get to chapter 2, around verse 11, he makes a turn for the remainder of the, cha- of the book. And he's going to lay out all these different areas of life where we as Christians are to submit. He talks about our homes. He talks about our churches. He talks about an everyday life with personal relationships. But he also talks about the government. And beginning in verse 13, this is where I want to pick up in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, be subject, or your translation may say, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. One of the debates that Christians can really get into sometimes is how much should a Christian be involved in politics? I mean, is it even okay for a follower of Jesus to run for governor or to run for the presidency or for Congress? I mean, if our eternal home is really in heaven and it's not here, then why have anything to do with this at all, right? And so there's an argument there, and and I don't believe that's accurate. I believe that we actually live in this place, we live in this world, and so it's okay to participate in these things. But a lot of times what we do as Christians is we are looking into the scriptures to basically give credibility to every single thing politically we see in life. And we invoke the scriptures to promote our candidate over another one. And we got to be very careful about that. Because when we look at the scriptures, the scriptures don't show us just an appropriate level of involvement that Christians can have. But more importantly, the scriptures are pointing us to a particular type of people God expects his followers to be. And that should color the way that we approach this election. What these scriptures we just read point us towards is not a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. We're not here this morning to determine whether or not God's mascot would be a donkey or an elephant. And we're definitely not here to give a litmus test for church membership that includes party identification. As a matter of fact, when you look around culture today, one of the things that's disturbing the religious right so much in this election, and and people are being motivated by this, and it's not all wrong, is that we see the decadence of American society, we see how things are going south, morally speaking, and, and then what that causes us to do is to go into our protectionist modes, that we've got to preserve Um, our standing, 
And, and leaders and, and the religious movement start attaching themselves to political leaders in order to preserve that power base. And I don't believe that it's motivated by power, but the actions definitely portray that if we're not careful. And people are nervous about where the church's place is going to be, where a Christian's place going to be at the table in the coming four years or the coming eight years. And that's not all wrong. However, it's not ultimate. There's something bigger at play than who sits on the Supreme Court. There's something bigger at play than who sits in the White House. Yes, American culture is being shaken right now. But as Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council of the Southern Baptists, as he so eloquently says, and I wholeheartedly agree with him, he says the shaking of American culture is no sign that God has given up on American Christianity. In fact, it may be a sign that God is rescuing American Christianity from itself. We receive celebrities simply because they are conservative without asking what they are conserving. If you're angry with the same people we are, you must be one of us. But it would be a tragedy to get the right president and the right Congress and the wrong Christ. This is one of the things I am so nervous about in this election. I'm not saying the Supreme Court's irrelevant. I'm not saying that Hillary or Donald are irrelevant. But what I am saying is it concerns me that some of us as Christians are putting more of our emphasis on earthly matters, more of our emphasis on political matters, and looking for political expediency, and just looking for that right person to link ourselves with who's going to eradicate all of our problems, make everything good for Christians at the expense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what our neighbors may be even interpreting in us in the process. So this morning I want to talk to us as Christian Americans. Not American Christians. Do you see the distinction? Christian Americans. You and I are Christians. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are servants of the ultimate High King Jesus. But we are also Americans. Who live in this world... And relate to an earthly government. But we're Christians first. Americans second. So what does it look like. To live as honorable citizens. Of two different worlds. That's your hard question today. So let's seek to answer it. Let's look at some of these big picture truths. And then if I can just give you one more little rabbit trail. Before we go into the outline. What I hope to do. Is in the, for the sake of time today. I, I'm going to give you two things. Number one, I want to show you in the scriptures what I believe the Lord commands us and calls us to be as citizens of two different worlds and how we should relate to our government and interpret this political process and how we should engage it. And then if I do an okay job with that and I leave some time at the end, what I want to do is I want to take about 10 minutes or so and I want to just give you my personal commentary on what we're seeing and what we're experiencing, and to hopefully help you see and understand in some ways that possibly you haven't thought about before. And then we're going to pray at the end for ourselves, for our country, and for our nation. That's my goal today, okay? Number one, how do Christians, 
approach this election? How do Christians live as honorable citizens of two different worlds? Number one, recognize that we are ultimately responsible to God, not man. Recognize that we are ultimately responsible to God, not man. If you look at verse um, 16, verse 16 calls us, tells us that we should live as servants of God. The ultimate issue here is not being a servant of Nero. It was not being a Roman citizen. Here in America, your ultimate goal, your ultimate responsibility is not to President Obama, Bush, Clinton, or Trump. Your ultimate responsibility is to Jesus, the high king. And as a matter of fact, when you go through this short passage, only a few verses, verses 13 through 17, there are so many references to God. You can go in every single one of these verses, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. Verse 13, for the Lord's sake do these things. Verse 14, the government is sent by him. Verse 15, submitting ourselves is the will of God. Verse 16, we are to live as servants of God. And in verse 17, the command is to fear God. And so the overarching theme here for Peter is that whatever happens to us here as citizens, whoever is leading us as our earthly ruler, that ultimately our responsibility is to God far before our responsibility is to man. Now, since our responsibility and allegiances are ultimately to be towards God first and man second, that should affect the way we frame our expectations of government and of our leaders, particularly the president or the Congress or to our governor here in Massachusetts. None of these people, no matter how good they are or how uh, trying they may be, is ultimate. God is. And it's our allegiance and responsibility to him that should now inform our responsibility to our country or our governing leaders. Now, this should frame our expectations. So around this time every year, so here's the, here are the mistakes we make. We make mistakes on the left and we make mistakes on the right. My liberal progressive friends, they make a mistake by seeing the government, although they may not articulate it this way, what is communicated is that government is the answer or a answer or the solution to any problem facing society or mankind. And so if there's a problem, government should respond to that problem. If there is a need, government can provide it or should provide it if the resources are there. Now that's not all 100% wrong. That's not saying that if we can do something that we should just ignore that and just let people suffer and die in the streets. However, if we don't have our expectations properly framed of our leaders and our government, and especially if we don't have our eyes on our ultimate king and our God and Father, then what we can begin to convince ourselves of is that the government is my ultimate provider, the government is my ultimate ruler, the right president is going to take away all of my ills and all of my problems, and I have the wrong expectation of government. Now let me tell you where my conservative friends get it wrong. My conservative friends, especially my conservative friends who believe in limited government, all government is wrong. Since we ultimately follow God and Jesus as our high king, then government should not just do, they just shouldn't do anything. I shouldn't pay taxes. 
Um, why even elect any of these bozos to begin with, right? We use those ty- that type of language. And, but then also we can take it a step further and we can start convincing ourselves that just as our liberal and progressive friends can, can wrongly believe that government can take away or solve every problem, we on the conservative side of things sometimes can do the exact same thing, but just from a different angle. Do we not see it playing out in this election? Well, we, we have to vote for Trump because no matter what problems he has in his life or his moral character or the egregious things he has said, he's going to give us a conservative Supreme Court. And we have to have a conservative Supreme Court so that we can pray in schools and so that religious liberty can take place. Now, I'm all about a conservative Supreme Court. But if all we're doing is trumpeting that through culture, what we are ultimately saying is really no different than what our liberal progressive friends are saying is that government can meet our end to which we point as long as we have our guy in office and that's our expectation. And what I'm challenging us to do is we have to have a different expectation of government. When you look at the scriptures, there are very few responsibilities government has. The basic responsibilities are, they have a responsibility to tax you, by the way. I don't know if you knew that or not especially to my Republican friends. Uh, Taxes are actually biblical. They're in there. Jesus actually said, pay them. Give to God what's God and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. They have a responsibility to tax you. They have a responsibility to provide for the common welfare. They have a responsibility to protect you from evil. They have a responsibility to defend you from foreign threats. Outside of that, biblically speaking, there aren't many biblical responsibilities of government. And the challenge for my more liberal friends is when we take passages of Scripture that are really put towards the church, like Acts 2, and sharing our belongings for the common good, that's a command and a a description of what the early church was doing towards each other as, as the body of Christ. And where my liberal friends get in trouble is when they take passages like that and then apply it to the government and say it's biblical for the government to do these things when it's not talking about government at all. Here's my ultimate point. Both conservatives, liberals, Republicans, and Democrats appeal to the Bible to pursue their ends where they want to take the country. And that's what frames our expectations. And in doing so, because we as people are not always very discerning, we buy it hook, line, and sinker depending on what side of the aisle we're on And it reframes our expectations to the point to where we start living for man and we live for the government. We live for our respected candidate instead of living for God himself. Jay Bachevsky wrote a great book called How to Stay Christian in College. Some of you we've given that to. And uh, he has a great chapter in there on expectations of government. And he writes this, in this sinful world, it's inevitable that many good things that should happen don't. And many bad things that shouldn't happen do. Because government is so powerful, many college students think it can be used to make all the good things happen and stop all the bad things from happening. And to do this, they want government to horn in on the affairs of other social institutions like family and church. Misusing words, they call that upholding justice. The sad thing is that when government tries to take on jobs that aren't its own, it only makes things worse. And this is true on the conservative side as well as it is on the liberal side. But the big 
the first big picture principle I want you to see that Peter teaches us here as they lived under Emperor Nero is that our first responsibility is to God and it's not to man. It's to King Jesus and not to President whomever, okay? Secondly, secondly, generally speaking, we submit ourselves to all governing authorities. Generally speaking, we submit ourselves to all governing authorities. Now, we are ultimately responsible to God, but that doesn't exempt us from responsibility towards man. It doesn't take away our earthly citizenship responsibilities. Here is a radical truth to citizens of the United States of America. Are you ready for this? Submitting yourself to governing authorities, whether it's the governor, whether it's the city council, whether it's to the troop, the uh, state uh, policemen on the highways, whether it's to the president of the Congress, submitting to governing authorities is a common theme throughout the entire New Testament. Where do we see it? Look at it right here. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Well, maybe Peter just didn't understand everything in its right context. Maybe he got it wrong. We'll look at Romans 13.1. The Apostle Paul writes the same thing. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And in Titus chapter 3, the same Apostle Paul wrote this. Remind them to be submissive to ruling authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Now, it is important to remember the historical context from which Peter is writing this letter. It's important because we live in a day and age that basically says, well, I didn't vote for President Obama. He's not my president. God would disagree. You may say that after the election, if it's President Hillary Clinton, I don't want her. I don't respect her. God would disagree. It's important because... The Bible tells us to submit to the governing authorities and to honor the governing authorities. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. We as Christians cannot stand back and just say, well, I'm not going to submit to someone who doesn't stand for my beliefs. We can't say I'm not going to respect someone who I see as ungodly or I'm just not going to vote for that person because he or she is not a Christian. Peter is writing this letter to the church at Rome under the rule of Nero. That same powerhouse authority uh, who came to power through family tragedy and corruption. This was a guy who wielded his power very, very irresponsibly. And in a tragic show of arrogance and force, he would eventually set fire to the city of Rome. And he did this as an excuse to basically go after Christians. One historian frames it this way. On the night of July 19, 1864, a fire broke out in the southern part of the city. It raged for six days, spreading far and wide. And when it was about to die out, it suddenly broke out again in the northern part of the city and burned three more days. Ten of the 14 wards of the city were destroyed. The frenzy in the city was indescribable. Rumors began to spread that Nero himself had started the fire because of his delirious craving for magnificent, magnificence and desire to embellish and rebuild the city. 
to divert attention from himself, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire who were hated anyway, and so they were good scapegoats. The effect was horrendous. There had been no persecution like it since the Lord had risen 30 years earlier. In the gardens of Nero, the Christians were crucified, sewn into wild beast skins, and fed to dogs, drenched in flammable oil and lifted on poles to burn as torches in the night. Now, I know that 2,000 years of church history can divorce us from our brothers and sisters of antiquity. But I want to remind us this morning that the people this historian are writing about are your eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. We are connected. We are a part of this ultimate family of God. Under the rule of Nero, Christians suffered greatly. Under the rule of many dictators and despots all across the world today and throughout the last century, Christians have suffered greatly. But yet, whether it was the first century in Rome or whether it was the 15th century, Constantinople, whether it is in China in the 20th century or the United States in the 21st century, the Bible tells Christians to submit yourselves to the ruling authorities and God gives no qualification for it. And we do this for a couple of reasons. Number one, because their purpose is God's design. Their purpose is God's design. Uh, If you look at verse 15, it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of uh, foolish people. I'm sorry, I meant to say verse 14. To governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Paul echoes this in Romans 13. Their purpose is God's design. God has designed government on earth for the general good and, and, uh, and welfare of mankind. Now, there are some bad governments out there. You just think the United States government is bad. We're so incredibly blessed in this country. We're so incredibly blessed. There are governments on this earth that literally manipulate their people, that literally oppress their people, that literally abuse their people. There are countries on this earth that once the presidential election is over and the new president or king comes to power, it is very customary in many countries to actually jail and even some uh, instances kill their political opponent just to get them off the face of the earth. That's happened throughout history. It happens still today. The worst case scenario, and I'm not saying that elections don't have consequences because absolutely they do. The worst case scenario for us in America is usually we have to endure four years of having an administration of someone that we vehemently disagree with. And God has blessed us in this country to give us a mechanism through which at least four years later we can make a change if we want to. Here's the picture from Scripture. Any government is better than no government. Governing authorities and government, is, they have been put here by God's design. They're an arm of the Lord, the scriptures tell us. Even a bad government is better than no government. Even a government who oppresses its people is better than total anarchy. Because of the chaos and the abuse that would take place. 
I said, I don't understand all the intricacies of that. Can I be honest with you this morning? And I know that right now you're saying, yeah, but what about, but what about, and I understand that because I kind of feel that way too as I look at specific instances, but we can't get away from the fact in the scriptures that government's been put here by God for our good, for the collective good of society, and any government is better than no government, so their purpose is God's design. That's why we submit to them. But also, secondly, it's because our submission is God's will. Our submission is God's will. This is ultimately why we submit. It's what the scriptures tell us in verse 15. For this is the will of God. In verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's God's will for us to submit to authority. This is so hard for us as Americans because we live in the land of the free, the home of the brave. We don't want to be ruled. It's why we broke away from King George. But the Bible tells us to submit. And it's a good thing for us to submit. It's why when the blue lights flash, we pull over. It's why when an officer says, do this, we don't question, we do it. That honors God. We live in a day and time where it is novel and it's actually trendy to resist authority. America went through another season like this in the 1960s and the 1970s. It's popular to resist authority. It's, it's popular to challenge the system. And it's not, we live in a unique situation where, yes, we can speak truth to power, but we can't allow our American democratic principles to override our biblical mandate to submit to and honor our leaders. Somehow as Christians, we've got to live in that tension to figure out how to do both of those. And we do it imperfectly, but we should do it. We're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities, but generally. But why do I say generally? Because brothers and sisters, there could be a time when the government actually commands you to do something by law that will directly go against your biblical mandate from God. Now, very rarely does this happen in America. Okay, I want you to follow me. I understand that we have disagreements. I understand that there have been some things that have come down through the courts in different ways. But generally speaking, we don't struggle with this here yet. You say, yeah, but it's coming. And if Hillary gets in, it's going to come even more with ferocity, right? There are conservatives that will say that. <clears throat> what do we do? Here's the deal. Do we think that somehow that Christians and other parts of the world aren't commanded by their government to do things or not do things in the name of the state that would contradict their Christian faith and would face even much harsher consequences that you and I would face in the United States of America? Of course there are. We've got to get outside of our American-only lenses, brothers and sisters. I understand that things could change in this country in the coming days, coming weeks, months, years, decades. I don't know. I don't know what God's design is for us. But I know that in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John had a very similar 
instance happen to them when they healed a guy and got in trouble for doing it and preaching in the name of Jesus. Because basically what was happening is that the leaders in the book of Acts, they were nervous because they saw their power starting to evaporate. And they saw this threatening movement starting to rise through Christianity because people started believing in Jesus and following these guys who were preaching. And because they were raising the dead, they were causing blinded eyes to see. They were healing people. It was crazy stuff, right? And so the rulers were threatened. And so here's what they do. In verse 16 of chapter 4, the rulers say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now this time they get off, but they will be imprisoned for this eventually. Here's the picture. Historically, as well as globally today, there are real life believers just like you and me who are making hard choices every day. Do I follow Jesus or do I follow the law of the land? And what we do at that point is we follow Jesus, but then we accept the consequences for doing it. You see, American Christians live in a world where we've grown up in safety and security, and anything less than safety and security must not be the will of God. You must be reading a different Bible than I read. We follow God. We honor the authorities until they command us to do something that goes against what God has commanded us to do, and then we accept the consequences. That's why we say, generally speaking, we submit ourselves to the governing authorities. Thirdly, Peter also tells us that we should conduct ourselves as good citizens. We conduct ourselves as good citizens. Now here's where we start getting into some application for election 2016. <clears throat> if you go back to Peter, in chapter 2, he says, this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, what I believe that we see here is when he says, for this is the will of God, I believe that what Peter is telling us is he's linking it back to the submission to their authority. And that when we do that and we conduct ourselves as a good and honorable citizen, following the laws of the land and submitting ourselves to the leaders, Peter says... That by doing this, you will put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, I think we can take this to mean a couple of different things, practically speaking, in our context. One, I think it lets us know that it's okay to be Americans. All right? I think it's okay to like hot dogs, apple pies, and Chevrolet while singing God Bless America. There's nothing unbiblical about those things. We shouldn't be so otherworldly that we are literally of no good in this one. Okay, I think it means that. But I also see that there's a deeper meaning as well. We should be known as Christians as the do-good people. We should not be known as the loudest carnival barkers in the room. We shouldn't be known for the people who are always carry, as the people carrying the picket signs. 
We shouldn't be known as the people who are putting things on our Facebook, ridiculing by name and calling derogatory names the major presidential candidates running for office. We shouldn't be the people who are trying to rally together a revolution to overthrow the government. Wait a minute, Chris, that's what we did at the American Revolution. That's a debate for a whole nother day, all right? We should be the people who are known for basically doing good and living a quiet and peaceful life. But unfortunately, we're known for a lot of other things. We behave as Christians as if this world is our home. And so we play by the same rules that everybody else plays by. And so all the world ridicules the other candidates and calls them derogatory names and, and questions their, their, their origin of birth and, and, and uh, calls them evil and this, that, and the other, right? So that's what the world does. Christians should be known for more positive words, more respectful tones, um, not... Uh, casting people to hell just because they have a different political viewpoint than your own. Christians should be known for good. I, I, I think about the religious right. So for those of you who are younger, maybe the religious right means nothing to you. Um, I believe also what this election is showing us, the chasm between the generations. Um, when, you, when you look at the ferocity of support among Donald Trump, an overwhelming majority of his support is concentrated among 60-plus-year-old white people. It's not to say that other people don't support him, but that is the bulk of his concentrated support. And when you look at the bulk of the support of a socialist-leaning senator named Bernie Sanders, it's people under 30. To my Friends and brothers and sisters in here over 50, you cannot overlook this. There is a chasm between what the worldview of 20 years was, uh, 20 years ago versus what it is today. I'm not endorsing either side, but if we don't recognize that in this election, we're missing a big thing that this electorate is telling us. But the religious right may not mean anything to you. But basically what happened in the mid to late 70s, there were a couple of very renowned evangelical pastors and leaders. Um, Jerry Falwell, Sr., um, James Dobson, uh, Adrian Rogers, and others. And, and they put together a coalition that was basically uh, tasked with taking America back for God. And over the last 40 years, there's, this is where the whole evangelical movement has come from, politically speaking. And so the purpose of that group, basically, and I'm oversimplifying here, was to work with Congress and governors and legislatures and the presidency to enact social change through legislation. And so if we just have born-again Christians in higher offices and conservatives on the Supreme Court, then we will win the culture wars by passing laws that will reflect biblical values. Now you fast forward 40 years. And to his credit, James Dobson said this just a few years ago in his farewell address when he was stepping down as president of Focus on the Family. He said, we are awash in evil and the battle is still to be waged. We are right now in the most discouraging period of that long conflict. Humanly speaking, we can say that we have lost all those battles. I appreciate his candor and his honesty 
Because you see what Dobson is confessing to here and is acknowledging that Christians' pursuit of attaching themselves to political leaders, to a political end, to the social ills that are, that are uh, illing America, it's failed. It has failed. We are no better off today than we were 40 years ago through all of those pursuits. If anything, and I would posit this, those debates and those fights have actually made it worse. Do you know what, I, you know what one of my hypotheses is? When you see the ferocity of engagement from the homosexual movement over the last five years and how they have so quickly gotten the rights that they want in an American society, I believe wholeheartedly it is in direct opposition and answer to all of the work of the religious right from the last 40 years to try to stamp it out. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm not saying that I sympathize with that side. I'm just saying that as Christians, we say that we belong to another world, but we behave as if we don't. We're to conduct ourselves as good citizens. And we have to recognize where our real home is. John MacArthur wrote a great book. I would definitely recommend it to you. It's called Why Government Can't Save You. If you're a conservative, it'll probably make you mad. If you're a liberal, it'll probably make you mad. That means it's a good, balanced biblical book, all right? So he wrote in that book, God simply is not calling us to wage a culture war that would seek to transform our countries into Christian nations to devote all or even most of our time, energy, money, and strategy to putting a facade of morality on the world or the appearance of rightness over our governmental and political institutions is to badly misunderstand our roles as Christians in a spiritually lost world. Today, there are 100 million Christians in China. Communist, socialist, China. The church of Jesus Christ is growing more quickly in China than almost any other place on the face of planet Earth. In the United States of America, Christian America, in God we trust America, Christianity has been on decline for the last 10 years. Brothers and sisters, what does this tell us? God is not advancing his kingdom through a religious party, a president, or a supreme court. Do you think that our brothers and sisters in China are worrying about that position on the supreme court next year? Do you think that Christians in China are worried about who the next emperor is going to be and how they're going to vote in the next election? No, because it's a communist dictatorship. They're not getting that that type of response there. They don't get to participate in that type of system. They don't get to make those choices. Instead, what they do, they live a quiet life and they follow Jesus and they share the gospel and they impact their friends and their neighbors and their families. The church is thriving because the church is not linked with the state. When are Christians in America gonna learn this, this truth? I believe that what America is facing in 2016 for Christians, Christians in America have an opportunity to finally wake up and see this. To finally see that our hope is not in an earthly leader, but it's in King Jesus. Last thing I want you to see is that now we should approach all civic life with honor. We should approach all civic life with honor. Verse 
verses 16 and 17, look what he says. This is so practical, ladies and gentlemen. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Four things. Number one, we honor all people. This means that on our Facebook feeds, we don't participate in things like the world participates in. Does this mean we don't post, we don't engage? Of course not. Of course we can do those things. But we don't call people names. We don't, we don't threaten people. We don't unfriend somebody because they believe differently than us. You know, a poll came out a couple of weeks ago that said in this election, 7% of Americans says that they have ended or lost friendships because of the election. perhaps we've made an idol, right? People matter more than politics. And so we conduct ourselves with honor. We talk to one another in an honorable way. We disagree with one another in an honorable way. We honor all people, especially the people with whom we disagree. Number two, he tells us to love the brotherhood. This means that we love fellow Christians. This means that we have to recognize where true, citizen, true citizenship lies. In here, we can behave in a way that the rest of the world just simply doesn't. You see, we can disagree politically here and still have sup together. We can disagree here and still hug each other. We can disagree here and still call each other brother and sister because we, are belong, we belong to another world and not this world only. We love fellow Christians. Three, we fear God. We fear God. We worship him. We recognize that he is our ultimate king and no earthly leader. But number four, that doesn't discount our responsibilities to our leader. We honor our president. No matter who he or she may be. And when we do these four things, we are actually honoring God Almighty. I have to confess to you this morning that I do these things imperfectly. Uh, one of the things that I believe that God has really done in my life and has really over, uh, overwhelmingly changed my worldview was moving me from the rural south to New England because I was forced to, do, to view the world differently because I was in a different setting and a different environment. And so I'm not perfect with this stuff. But I can tell you that God has engaged my heart in a very different way today than I engaged his 10 years ago. I want to just spend a few moments with you just kind of talking about this year and how we can take all these biblical principles, but then also just kind of think about it practically. If you guys would afford me just a few more moments. I've had so many people ask me questions. So many people who are so confused. So many people who don't know what to do. Let me first of all say that one of the struggles of this year's election is that we are using the same rules from every other election to apply to this one. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't think the same rules apply. I believe that we have thrown all decency for public discourse out the window and I believe that we are deluding ourselves if we think that we can just apply the same old rules to 2016. I believe from a prophetic sense, from a biblical sense, 2016 is a turning point. And it's not what you think. 
<clears throat> I believe wholeheartedly that this election says far more about us as an electorate than it does about any candidate running. And it's because we're treating this election like it's just any other election. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I don't believe that either Secretary Clinton or Mr. Trump are qualified to be President of the United States. I just don't. I believe that either one of these people will besmirch the office of the presidency. And when I go to the Reagan Library or when I go to the Bush Library, when I go to the Truman Library, the Roosevelt Library and Museum, I can't imagine going to either the Clinton or the Trump presidential library one day. This is George Washington's office we're talking about. This is Thomas Jefferson's office. This is Abraham Lincoln's office. Neither one of these people have behaved in a way, have spoken in a way that is fitting for this office. It's not a normal election year, ladies and gentlemen. Second thing I would say is that the way in which we are engaging ourselves in political discourse is as vitriolic and is characterized by demagoguery more than any other in American history. There have been some nasty elections in presidential history, none like this. We have sunk to new lows, and we have sunk to, uh, uh, to depths that I don't believe that we want to go. It's not a normal election year. It's not a normal election year. There are three things, I think, that are pushing us into this political abyss. It's reflective far more of the electorate than it is our leaders. I want you to hear that. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's us. It's not them. Here's what it is. Let me give you three things. <clears throat> Number one, it's individualism. It's individualism. Fifty years ago, President John F. Kennedy said these famous words, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Through the World War II generation, uh, through the 60s and the 70s, we, 80s, we, we made decisions collectively for the good of our country. But over the last 10 to 15 years, identity politics have grown so strongly in this country that whether you're the religious right or whether you're the woman vote or the Latino vote or whatever specific demographic, it's all about what this candidate or this government is going to do for me and for my family. Individualism is pushing this. On top of that, you have people who don't really interact with anybody else who's not like them. There are so many of my white friends in the rural South who interact with no other people of, 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 people of any other ethnicity. Uh, there are African Americans and Latinos that stay in their enclaves and they, they, they don't interact with other people who are different than them. We're individualistic. We see the world through our own lenses and our own demographic only. That's one of the things I really believe that is pushing this. Number two, it's tribalism. Tribalism. Politically speaking, what we do is we huddle into our own tribe and we won't listen to anybody else who disagrees with us. And as a matter of fact, the moment a candidate varies from that political plank, that person is immediately cast out in the primary the next time around because they did the, audac the audacious thing of actually going to the Senate or going to the Congress and compromising with the other side. That's not throwing your principles out the window. It's recognizing the foundations on which America was founded. Compromise. Majority rules. 
minority rights. We've got to stop punishing people and our, quote, parties for compromising with the other side. It's killing us. And talk radio, social media, and cable news is feeding this. We got to be smarter than that. Individualism, tribalism, lastly, nostalgia. Yuval Levine wrote a great book called uh, Fractured Republic. I read it this summer. It's one of the greatest political reads I've read in recent years. And, and he notes how so much of our political discussions are based upon the past. And so Democrats do this by saying, if we can just go back to the principles of Roosevelt and the New Deal or Johnson and the Great Society and just put those to today, that's what's going to take care of all the societal problems because the democratic way is the best. Conservatives do the same thing. Conservatives go back to post-war era, to the Eisenhower years, or they they point to uh, Reagan from the 80s and say, if we just go back and do what Reagan did, guess what? Reagan was president 35 years ago. And let me just tell you the difference between America in 1980 and 2016. 1980 and 2012, there was about the same turnout in the American electorate, about 53, 54% of people voted. In 1980, that, in, that meant 85 million Americans. In 2012, it meant 127 million. There are far more people who live in America today. There is far more diversity in America today. America is far less white than it used to be. We cannot keep solving our problems today with 30, 50, and 80-year-old solutions. We've got to come up with new ones. But individualism, tribalism, and nostalgia are feeding the cesspool of American politics today. Now, let me give you four options for November 8th. This election has convinced you that it's a binary option between two very unfit candidates. And it's only the Republican or Democratic candidate. There are far more options than, there are, than the media tells us and what you've come to believe probably I think there are four options before us. Number one, you can vote for one of the two unfit candidates. And if you do, this is a no-judgment zone. If your conscience is clear, go ahead and do that. But I would offer you three other options, one which I don't think is really an option. One is just don't vote. There are too many countries on the face of the planet that are just stuck with their leaders and never get to participate in the process. And I don't want to treat their non-right so trivially by not exercising mine. So you can do that if you want, but I would encourage you not to. I would encourage you to vote. I think there are two other options. One, you can vote third party. Yeah, but Chris, if it's just third party, that's just really a vote for somebody else. I don't live in a world where my vote is a vote against somebody else. I want my vote to be for something. I want my vote to be for someone I don't just go to the polls to vote against somebody. I want to vote for someone. So you can vote third party. And there are some really legitimate options out there if you would go research that. And then the last one in the state of Massachusetts, we have the opportunity to write in. How democratic is this? We're actually not stuck with just two choices. We, we can write somebody else in. Well, Chris, there's no way that person would ever win. You are absolutely correct. But let me posit this to you. I believe that 2016 is a turning point for American politics. 
I believe that this election is no longer about electing a preferred candidate. I believe this election is about the people of America and Christian people too standing up and saying enough is enough. No more. This has gone too far. I as an elected I as a citizen here, I'm not going to participate in a process and continually add lanes on a bridge that has gone so far past the point of public decency. I'm going to stand up, and if 10 or 20 million people, even 10 to 20 million people would stand up in this election and say that there is a line that is too far for you to go on the road to the White House. There's a line that goes too far, and both of you passed it a long time ago. Do you not think if 20 million people rose up in this country and made that vote heard, neither one of these people on on Inauguration Day would be able to claim and boast about any mandate? from this electorate. Americans keep saying that politics is horrible and it's a cesspool and you hate it, but yet we as a citizenry continue to prolong it by just voting for the options that are before us. Stand up and do something different. There are real options in this election. There really are. My biggest fear is where we're going. If it's this bad this year, how bad's it gonna be in 2020? At some point, we gotta say stop. We get a return to decency. We get a return to decency because if we don't, the Bible itself, a house divided against itself, cannot stand. Jesus is king. We worship him, and we worship him only. But on earth, we try to make the best choices for the greatest amount of good. I want us to do something a little different this morning. I want us to stand up. The band's gonna make their way to where we can respond this morning through song and just proclaim our worship to King Jesus. But I want us to stand. And I want to encourage you to I want to encourage you to take the hand of the person next to you and just link the aisles. And what I want to do today is through solidarity. Through solidarity of heart, mind, and then also through physical touch. Let's pray. Let's pray for our country. Let's pray for our leaders. Let's pray for this election. And let's entreat the favor of God. And then in doing that, let's show our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you today recognizing that we are a people of unclean lips living in the land of unclean lips. And we've seen and seen and heard a lot of unclean lips over the last year in this rancorous election. But Father, I know that you're calling us to something better. You long for us as people to want something better. And I know that in this room there are so many different positions that could be held. There's disagreements. But Father, I pray right now that you would unite us, unify us around the truth of your gospel. I pray that your spirit would empower us this morning to see you as our ultimate king. Jesus, we look forward to the day when you come back and you will take us to our rightful place, the place where only righteousness will dwell. And Father, we look at the choices before us and earthly speaking, we we really don't know what to do. And earthly speaking, we're disgusted. Father, give us the courage to do what's right but guard our hearts from thinking that anything we do on November 8th is ultimate. 
Father, today I pray for Secretary Clinton. I pray for Donald Trump. I pray for Gary Johnson and Jill Stein. I pray for Evan McMullen and many others who are floating out there who would want to be president. Father, I pray that you'll protect these people. I pray that you'll protect them from evil because I know there are people in this country right now who under the right circumstances would want to harm any one of them. Father, protect them. Father, give them wisdom as they make their way through these last few weeks. I pray in your supernatural power and wisdom that you would just stop the rancor, that even tomorrow morning that it would be a new day. Father, I also pray that you will protect us. No matter what comes, no matter who is president, no matter who sits on the Supreme Court, you're our king. You're our ultimately court judge. And I pray that we would settle that in our hearts and we would live that way on earth. And I pray that the way in which we respect our leaders and pray for our leaders and engage our neighbors would show the world that we belong to Jesus and that this world is not our home. Now, Father, tune our hearts to you. And as we sing right now, would you just put songs of worship and praise in our hearts? And would you be blessed by your citizens worshiping you, the true King? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.